Hi, you've just downloaded or otherwise accessed a podcast of Cross Point Church and the teaching ministry presented through our weekly Sunday morning worship. Feel free to burn a copy of this file when you're finished and pass it along to a friend you think might also benefit from the teaching. We hope you enjoy the message today, and thanks again for taking the time to visit. You guys remember this scene. If you've had kids, you remember this scene. They're standing on the side of the swimming pool, just right there on the edge. They're about toddling, you know, maybe two-ish, 18 months somewhere in there. You back off about a step. Come on, jump, jump. No, you, you, see, you see the tense in their body. They're scared. They're, and, and finally, you're, you move close enough. You reach out far enough, and they finally jump. And at that moment, when they finally jump, fear turns into faith, turns into fun. Now, everything in, before that is just totally... I mean, you're antsy. The kids antsy. I remember both my girls, and they were that way. And, you, and we did that to try and teach them how to swim, too. Just set them on the side, and we'd take another step back. And they'd jump, you know. And dog paddle as quick as they could. Drinking half the pool. Set them up on the side. See how fun that was? Yeah, I agree. Set them on the side again. They take another step back. They jump again. And so sooner or later, fear turns to faith, turns to fun. That's the process of how God works with us sometimes. I don't know if you saw this uh, article. In front, when, you may have heard it in the. It's it's been on several national news reports. I heard it on the radio the other day, and and I saw an article in Friday's paper about it. You've probably seen or heard about this Higgs um, particle or boson that they've discovered. They built a big machine. <clears throat> and they've been doing this for fifty years now. They built a big machine to, to crash atoms into each other. And they, they watch as these atoms crash into each other with these super magnified video cameras to see where these particles come from after the, or as it crashes, to see where the particles go, what happens to them, what comes from them. And they finally think in all of that that they've discovered the God particle. Have you heard the story about that recently, about the God particle? That's this Higgs boson that they've discovered, these scientists have discovered. And I'll read you the, the last paragraph in this story from Friday's paper. The discovery of the Higgs boson or a particle very much like the one Higgs theorized nearly a half century ago, is a triumph of worldwide collaboration. Physicists say it opens the door to new discoveries about the building blocks of our universe. Now, if you think the building blocks of our universe are taking place in this machine (laughs) that crashes these atoms together, we need to talk. Because the building blocks of our universe occurred in Genesis 1-1. And from there, the building blocks of our universe occurred. I mean, God spoke creation into existence. He can crash all the atoms they want to. But God spoke creation into existence. And this God particle that they're looking for, or looking at now, to say, this is the particle. It's, it's the building block from which life forms take place. This is the, this is the one particle we've been looking at for, these, for the low of these many 50 years. The name is after this Higgs guy because this Higgs guy said it actually existed. He just couldn't prove it. And so... As they discovered this God particle, I, I began to read this story and listen to some of it on the radio, read this newspaper article, got online a little bit to research a little bit about who this Higgs guy was and what this God, God particle was, and I saw, man, the further I go with this, the more faith I've got to have to believe that this is legit. <laughs> I mean, I've got to have, have, have a whole lot more faith to believe that the creation didn't, that God didn't create creation by existence, by speaking it into existence, than, than to believe this stuff. And I'm not saying that none of that happened. It did happen. It, they, they filmed all this, but... The, the truth of the matter is that life came from God. It didn't come from some, from some experiment somewhere in some lab. So 
And they called the God particle, or one of these scientists who's been discovering this, there's about 20 of them, they've been working on this. Uh, and it's, it's a huge facility from what, the, what I've said, from what I've heard. And, and they, they have these atoms going in a circle with each other and then, you know, create something going in the opposite circle and they crash these things together. And it's, it's about a half a mile that these, that these atoms are traveling. They crash them together and film all this, these explosions and all this. And, and I thought, man, going to this much trouble to try and figure out what the nature of life is about, what the building blocks of human existence are about. And the building blocks of human existence are about faith in the God who said, let there be light. And there was light. Faith in the God who takes a rib from a woman and, or from man and makes woman from the very rib of, of man. Well, I think it takes more faith to believe some of those kinds of things than it does to believe the scripture anymore, but wherever you find faith. Anyway, I want us to see this story tonight in, uh, in Mark 5 of faith unfold because it's a beautiful story. Two, actually, it's a story within a story. Uh, and we're not going to read this entire scripture just for sake of time, but we're going to be covering verses 21 through verse 43 of Mark 5. Now, what happens in this story, in fact, let's read the first few verses together, 21 through 23 or so, um, or 4. When Jesus again had crossed over by boat to the other side, and you'll remember last week he, he cast the demons out of, this, out of this guy. He had this multiplicity of demons, likely over 2,000 demons that this guy had possessed, and he cast them out, cast them as pigs. They run into the ocean, and they tell the story about it, and all the folks come out, and they're, they're trying to run him out of town. He goes, crosses over, verse 21, by boat to the other side of the lake, and a large crowd gathered around him, while he was by the lake, then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My daughter is dying. Please come put your hands on her so that she'll be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Now, I want us to look at this, this faith being a, 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 and I call it risky business because it is. Until we're willing to risk something, our faith is meaningless. And when we stand here in the safety and the confines of this church, say, yeah, we got faith. I mean, God can do it. He can do anything in my life he wants to. But it's what occurs out there as to whether, as to, that measures what our faith looked like, whether it's real, whether it's legitimate, or whether it's something we just talk about in safe places like this. And so that's what this, this, the context of these verses are about tonight, and I want us to see this basically in three lights, the, the, the faith in his persona, the faith in his power, and the faith in his presence. Now, the faith in his persona is everything about what, what Jarius came for. I mean, Jarius comes, I mean, he's heard the story. You, he's heard all these stories of, you know, Jesus went to Capernaum and everybody, the whole town came out and everybody that was sick in the whole town got healed. And everybody that was demon possessed in the whole town got healed at, at Peter's house in Capernaum. They've heard these kind of stories. And they, they've heard the story by now that, man, this, this guy, this demon out here from Decapolis, this guy was out in the tombs, he was living in the rocks, he was crying out, he was cutting himself with stones. This guy was nuts. He'd broken chains, couldn't bind him anymore. Jesus healed this guy. And the demons are no longer in him. In fact, he wanted to follow Jesus after it was over and you know the story last week. Jesus sends him back to tell everybody about it. So these, these stories had spread. And so Jairus, Jairus, he comes to him in, in great faith, knowing that he can do something. The persona of Jesus had, had existed before he even shows up. But I want us to see a couple things here from this. First of all, that kind of faith, faith in his persona, moves us to risk convenience. We're going to look at a bunch of risks tonight. But the first one is the risk of convenience. Now, there was a large crowd you see gathered here in verse 21, Again, Jesus had crossed over, and a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Now, large crowd here in this context could mean anything from several hundred to a few thousand. Don't know exactly what the large crowd was, but we know by the crowds that were increasingly following him as he began to 
go to one region or another, word began to spread. Word of mouth began to spread. The crowds grew bigger and bigger and bigger. So the crowds at this point were probably in the neighborhood of a few hundred, maybe seven or eight hundred, to as many as fifteen hundred to eighteen hundred to two thousand. So the crowds were getting bigger and bigger. And you see Jairus' problem. There's a large crowd around Jesus. What's going to make Jairus stand out among all these folks? I mean, they're pressing in around him. Master, master, you know, uh, my, my, my daughter is sick or my husband needs a job or my, you know, those are our modern day contexts. You know, here, here's, meet my needs, meet my needs, help me, help me. So there were probably, as I say, hundreds, potentially thousands around him. And Jairus has got to work his way through that, uh, through the crowd and, and all to get to Jesus. And so the first couple of things I want us to see here from this idea of convenience is his persistence. His persistence, first of all, to fight his way through the crowd and it's persistent, secondly, to believe that Jesus could actually do what he said he would do when he got there. The second thing I want us to look at is found uh, in verse 22. Um, then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, fell at his feet. Saw Jesus and fell at his feet. Persistence and humility are great steps for you and I to learn what faith really means, what it looks like, how it needs to be lived in our life. Secondly is this. Not only does faith, uh, faith move us to risk convenience, but it moves us to risk position. Verse 22 says, then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus. Now, Jairus was likely in the camp of where most of the Pharisees of that day. And the Pharisees, as you'll, in fact, turn back to chapter 3, uh, and you'll see what the, what the Pharisees thought of Jesus. Turn back to chapter 3 and look at verse... He was in the Sabbath here in, in the first few verses of chapter 3, or in a synagogue on the Sabbath, and this guy with a shriveled hand comes up, and it's, it's unlawful to heal on the Sabbath, according to Jewish custom, Jesus asked this guy to stretch out his hand. He stretches out his hand, and Jesus heals him there in the, on, the, on the Sabbath in the synagogue. And he's, the murmurings are going on, you know, in the Sabbath, I mean, uh, in the synagogue with all the Pharisees. And they ask him, what's, he perceives all this and ask him there in verse 4, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or do evil, to save or to kill? And metaphorically asking the question. Anyway, he, he stretches out his hand. Jesus heals it. Look at verse 6. The Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So Jairus is likely in the camp of these Pharisees. In other words, he's a synagogue official. Doesn't say he's a Pharisee, which he's likely not. He's just a synagogue official. However, the Pharisees ran the synagogue. And so if the Pharisees run the synagogue, you've got to please the Pharisees to keep your job as a synagogue official. So see what he's risking here by coming to Jesus. He's risking his very livelihood because if the Pharisees hear that he's come to Jesus to say, hey, my daughter needs heal, can you? I mean, they're, they're trying to kill him. He's risking his livelihood. He's risking his reputation. He's risking the life, actually, probably of his family. Because not only was it normal for him to be outcast, but for his entire family to be put out of synagogue if these kind of things happened. The Pharisees did that routinely. And so he's risking the very, his very life, his very livelihood, and, the, and potentially the life and livelihood of his family. Um, everything for his daughter. For his family. Here's the, my first question for us tonight. And that is, how far will you go for your faith? How far will your faith take you? Will it cause you to, enough to push through the inconvenience of the crowd? The inconvenience of prayer? The inconvenience of studying God's word? The inconvenience of walking together in community with people? The inconvenience of, 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 of having somebody accountable in, a, in our life and in our world? Are we willing to push through those kinds of things to see our faith grow? And our faith increase? Are we willing to risk our position? Are we willing to say, if it takes it, and this is where he was at, if it takes it, I'm willing to walk away from my job 
not just to get my daughter healed, but I'm humbling myself before the very one who's going to, these guys are wanting to put to death. And I know, I work with these guys, they're wanting to put this guy to death. And I'm, I'm humbling myself before his very presence here, not only for the benefit of my daughter, but to let him know I believe in him. Not just what he can do for my daughter, but I believe in him. That's, that's an inconvenient faith. That's a faith that, faith that risks something. Secondly, faith in his power. Now, up to this point, we, and, we, and we looked at this in the first couple of chapters of Mark, where, and we, we kind of chronicled this a little bit, where initially Jesus' miracles, most of them were done with his voice. He said, be healed, come out of the, this individual, the demons come out of this. So the first two or three miracles was with his voice. Then he moved from, from miracles with his voice to actually touching people and his hands. He put his hands on them. He, the, the, you remember the guy, lowering the guy down into the, into the, uh, fr- through the roof, and, and Jesus spoke him, spoke healing to this guy to say, get up out, take your pallet, and walk. He goes later to, in, in, into Capernaum and touches these people in Capernaum with his hands. So we see now that, that he's moved beyond his voice and moved beyond his hands. Look at what happens in these verses. This lady comes. Jairus, he, he's, he's, he's going to go with Jairus, to grant his wish, and go with Jairus to the house of his daughter. And on the way, this, this large crowd still pressing around him, still pressing in verse 25, and there was a woman there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Now, put yourself in the, in, in the mind of this lady. She understands that she's heard the stories too. He spoke and people got up off their pallets and walked home. that had been paralyzed. He touched people and people, demons walked out of them and, and they were healed and their, their infirmities and their sickness had gone away. And she says, surely this person with this much power, if I even touch his clothes, I'm going to be healed. That's the first time anything like this has happened in Scripture. And one of the few times, actually, that this happens at all. But the first time anything like this happens in Scripture, and she gets in her mind, if I just touch his cloak, if I just touch the backside of his coat, I'll be healed. That's an incredible faith that's going to move her to that kind of thing. Now, two things here that I want us to see there is it moves us to risk our health. This kind of faith in his power moves us to risk our health. And she did that in verse 27. She, we, under, we understand she's been bleeding for 12 years. And through probably a very weak physical condition, she presses through the crowd also, just like Jarius. Works her way up to him as close as she can get. She, as, as, we, as we said, has been very weak. She's, she's really more or less at the end of herself. In fact, 26 kind of speaks to that. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors, and it's been all she had, yet instead of growing better, she grew worse. She's at the end of herself. Here's my, here's my question for you is, first of all, what does it take to get to the end of yourself? That's where faith starts. When you get to the end of, that's all I can do. That's all that's within my control. That's all I have any, any influence over whatsoever. When you get to the end of yourself, then you start to learn some things about your faith. Most of us learn little about our faith as long as we have some way to manipulate our circumstances. If I can work this out, if I can have this conversation, if I can pay half of this bill over here, and half of this bill over here, and if I can keep the bill collectors over here, and if I can work on this relationship enough to hold it intact, and if I can keep my wife happy over here, and my husband happy over here, if I can get my kids to soccer over here, and maybe they'll not want to do dance. Like, and we work ourselves through all these kind of situations, and we think, as long as we have some, some level of control over that, we lack no faith whatsoever. 
But when we get at the end of ourselves, whether it's health, in her case, it was health. In fact, she had, she had had a, a bleeding condition for, as, as we say here, a number of years, as the scripture says, and she was pretty much at the end of that. She had tried all the doctors. She had tried all the magicians. She had tried all the, all the, all the warlocks of her day. Still getting better, at worse instead of better. So where is she to go but him? Great lesson for you and I. At the end of ourselves, we find him. We find out what faith is about. And here's the true reality. When we think we're pulling the strings and manipulating things up into the end, wherever the end is for us, it's really him that's in control anyway. It's not us. It's not the things we're doing. It's not the ways we're working. You think he doesn't work through doctors? You think he doesn't work through the circumstances of our life? You think he doesn't work through calendar? You didn't think he worked through weather? You didn't think he can work through a car problem? Or a busted water heater. You think he can't work through those kind of things? He works through those kind of things anyway. We think we're in control of all that. We're really not. We never were. He was all along. But we find out more about our faith when we get to the end of that. Whatever that is. The end of, I can't go anymore. I can't produce anymore. I can't control anymore. That's where I find out what my faith is made of. If it's real or if it's just play stuff. Second thing is this. Not only did she risk health. But it moves us and her to risk embarrassment. Um, 32 and 33 talk about this a little bit. Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it, who had touched him. And then the woman, verse 33, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. The whole truth about her whole history. And she, she likely had a vaginal bleeding problem that had been going on for years and years and years. And you can, you can imagine, you ladies can imagine this, I'm sure, how embarrassing that probably would have been for her. Not only to admit that to him, but think about the hundreds of people that are standing around this whole scene. And so she goes up and touches his cloak. He, he senses power go from him, turns around, and, and he knows who touched her, <laughs> who touched him. He turns around to see if she'll be who she really is or if she's going to run away. And so he turns around, and who touched me? And she comes forth, bows at his feet, as the Scripture says, and tells him this whole story about her life and say, I've had this problem. And you can imagine her public embarrassment at admitting that to, this, to, 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 to Jesus. But she's admitting that to the person who's just healed her. What risk is there to admitting things to God that he already knows? None. Yet we think he's going to get us somehow, or he's still up, and he's just... You know, he's ready to smack us. If we, what risk is there in telling him the, the dirty details of our life that he already knows anyway? She risked embarrassment in front of the crowd and, and in front of him to teach us a great lesson, I think, and that's this. Get this if you don't get anything else tonight. A growing faith is always growing more transparent. A growing faith is always taking you to a more transparent place, to a more honest place, to a more real place, and where you were before. A growing faith looks like a faith that says, it's okay what you know about me. I don't care. Amen. Come into my world. Come into my life. I don't have anything to hide from you, God, or anybody else. A growing faith is increasing in transparency. It has less to hide. It has less to guard. And it has less to shield and defend. A growing faith, and she, she shows us a great example here to say, here I am. <laughs> I mean, my innermost, my, my, my most private problem the world now knows, but the world knows because he just healed it. He just healed me. There is, no, there, there is no risk in living honest and open and transparent before others. God's in control of all of that. The more honest you and I can be, I really feel like the more it draws people to us, not, not alienates them or puts them away. The more transparent we can become, the more authentic we can be. 
the more folks will see the Christ in us. She, she lives that out in front of them in, in verses 32 and 33. Now, not only was there faith in his persona by Jairus and in his power by this lady, but watch the rest of this. There's faith in his presence. In, as, he's, as he's leaving, he's walking away. He's commenting to Jairus, yeah, let's go to your house. He's walking away, and as he's walking away to, to go to Jairus' house, some folks from Jairus' house actually come. And, and you see the story there. You can read the story. They come and say, hey, don't worry with it. It's too late. She's already dead. Jairus' daughter has died. It's, it's too late. Don't waste your time. Don't bother the master any longer. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Don't ask him to come. It's going to be a waste of his time. She's dead. Jesus overhears this. And in overhearing this, in fact, look in verse uh, 36. Overhearing what they said, Jesus told them, don't be afraid. Just believe. If you could put five words on a t-shirt, that'd be five great words to put on a t-shirt. Don't be afraid. Just believe. And he tells her, uh, or, or, or he's telling, he will tell her in a minute, he's telling her parents, he's telling Jairus, he's telling the, the 12, his 12 followers, he's telling, telling all those hundreds of folks that, are, that have gathered around and these messengers that have come to say she's dead, don't be afraid, just believe. There is no circumstance where you should be afraid. God's saying to us, just believe. What? Believe that I'm already ahead of you in that circumstance. Now, what happens here is he, as, as you'll see this, in fact, let's read verse 37. He didn't let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the home of the synagogue leader, and Jesus saw a commotion, people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. And after he had put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, went into where she was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kaum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began walking around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished, and he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Now, he takes Peter, James, and John into this scene. Here are hundreds of folks walking around. He, he continues, forges onto the house after they said, don't bother, she's dead. He tells Peter, James, and John, you three follow me. They get to the house. You see the scene. Everybody's wailing around the house. Probably several folks around the house that have come because she's sick and come to help tend the family. And they're, they're wailing. Hey, what are you crying for? She's, she's okay. And they start laughing, and he puts all of them out, all of them out of the house. And we don't know how many, but he orders everybody out of the house except her mom, her dad, Peter, James, and John. Now, here's what he knew. Peter, James, and John didn't know this, but here's what Jesus knew. Jesus knew that Peter would become the rock, the rock upon which the, the New Testament church is built. He knew that, that, that Peter would have this vision on the, on the roof of Cornelius later that would say, take the message, to the, arise, kill and, eat, kill and eat the things that have been otherwise unsacred. In other words, take the message, take the gospel to the Gentiles. I see them as just as worthy as the Jews to receive the gospel. Take the message to them. You and I are the Gentiles sitting here tonight because Peter heard that message on the rooftop. So he knew Peter would become this missionary, this apostle, this great church planter. He knew James would become this great pastor that he would become. And he knew John would become this great writer that he would become not only writing the Gospels and the epistles, the epistles but Revelation. If you've read Revelation, you see this incredible, not only in the, in, the, in the story of how the churches should take the end time, how the churches should look at themselves toward the end time, but what the end time, the, the literal physical things that will happen and the great detail with which John records all of this. 
Never knowing that he's standing in this scene, that he'll be on, on an island of Patmos by himself one of these days, writing all this down as the Spirit's given it to him. John doesn't know any of that. James doesn't know any of that. Peter doesn't know any of that, but Jesus does. And so he takes these three, his, his inner circle three, into the scene to see all of this and experience all this, really to experience him more so than the experience, to experience what he's about to do, what he's about to say. Now, a couple of things I want us to see as we have faith in his presence. It moves us, and it did them, Peter, James, and John, and should us, moves us to risk the safety of the crowd. And that's where these guys were. I mean, they were, these guys were like rock stars. I mean, can you imagine? Everywhere Jesus goes, there's a crowd. And these, these guys, those, these, these are, the, these are the, the bouncers. I mean, these are his entourage. These guys are following him around, and he's, he's, he's a rock star of his day. And so they had pretty well notoriety because they were in with him. And they went everywhere he went and did, did experience the things he experienced as well. And so to take these three away and out of the safety of all of that, out of the safety of the 12 and the safety of the crowd, to say, hey, you guys come with me. Come with me. I want to, there's something I want you to see. First of all, I, I guarantee you they were afraid because they had heard the story. This gal's dead. Who does he think he is? I mean, they, they've seen healing now, and they've seen demons cast out up to this point. And they've seen water change to wine, and some of these. But this death to life stuff, they've not seen anything like this. And they're going, and this was, uh, death was handled much, it is still to this day handled much differently in the Jewish culture than, than it is for you and I. And so, likely even, there, were, there was discussion going on in the house about, do we start to anoint the body? Do we, do we go ahead and bring spices and those kind of things to anoint the body to prepare it for burial and all those kinds of things? And they're walking into this scene. These three fishermen are walking into this scene. They don't know anything. Walking into the scene of death with him simply because he said, you come with me. Now, they left the safety of the crowd, and what they were about to experience, I think, was something, well, undoubtedly was something supernatural, but they left the 12 kind of to be alone. And, and sometimes, here's what I want you to see in this. Sometimes walking by faith with him, you feel like you're walking alone. You feel like you're in a place where it's just you and him. And I'm going to tell you, that ought to be enough. It needs to be enough if it's just you and him. Several, uh, several months ago, uh, Doc and I went to a, a, a leadership conference um, sponsored by Faith Promise Church in West Knoxville. And, and it was a good conference. Um, Pat Summit was one of the speakers there at the conference. And and it was, there was probably a crowd of, I don't know, maybe five, six hundred pastors, mainly pastors, there. And, and uh, she spoke on leadership and shared a little bit of her testimony, but spoke on leadership and about principles of leadership and things like that. And, and she throwed it open to questions at the end. And so, you know, you got the obligatory questions of Pat Summit, who all of us in this, in this town, I'm sure, have a great deal of respect for, as do I, um, of what's... What's some of the greatest leadership principles that you've ever put into place in, in your in your coaching career? And and, and another, maybe another question I think was, have you surrounded yourself with good people over the years to help you kind of cast vision and 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 you know help help the program grow and become what it's become? And w- there were three or four questions like that, and I raised my hand, and she called on me, and I stood up, and I, and I felt the liberty to do this because she she had shared a little bit earlier. A little bit about the fact that she was married and divorced and she had a couple of miscarriages. And so she, I thought, kind of opened the door there and I, I went through the open door. I, she, I raised my hand. She asked me the question. I said, Coach Summit, you've had an incredible amount of success in your life. I wonder what your greatest failure is. You'd be willing to share that. And you could hear in the room the literal, and it's mainly guys. There was a few ladies there, but you could hear, you know, like how dare he ask that question of Pat Summit? You know why I ask it? Because I wanted to know. 
I wanted to know what her failure was. I wanted to know how she dealt with failure. Dealing with success is pretty easy for most of us. We find out what we're made of when failure comes, when hard times come, when we hit the hard places and the rocky places. And I wanted to hear that from her. What's your greatest failure? How did you make it through that? And she shared, um, I think she shared, best I remember, that, that I, and if I'm, I may mistell this, so this is going out on the Internet tomorrow all over the world, <laughs> but, but, but I think she had two miscarriages before she had, had Tyler. It was either one, but I think it was two. And so she pointed to those as her miscarriages, uh, as, as her greatest failures. And I thought that was interesting uh, in her answer and very honest in her answer. But, but I asked that question because I, I wanted to know. And I, but you know what I felt like after I asked the question? I felt like the only guy in the room. Because I felt like every other pastor in that room thought, who in the world do you think you are to ask Pat Summit, eight national championships, what her greatest failure was? But that tells me some things about a leader that you'll never earn or learn in their successes. That's what I wanted to know. Um, and honestly, this is, this is a great story here of, of loss and redemption and a failure and redemption, both in Jerry's daughter and in this, this lady with the, with the blood issue. But sometimes you've got to risk the safety of the crowd to stand alone and stand by yourself to see what God can do with that kind of faith that's willing to say, if nobody's with me, if everybody's with me, if, nobody, if, I'm, if I'm by myself, I'm still following him. I'm still having the faith in what he says I need to do. I'm going to follow his word. Secondly, though, this faith in his presence moves us to risk our loyalty. Look at verse 43. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Now, he takes five people in there, her mother and dad, and these three, Peter, James, and John, and tells them, don't tell anybody about this. <laughs> now, what, what would happen in our day is probably what happened in their day. They told everybody about it, likely. I mean, we don't, we don't know that because that's the end of the story, and we move on to something else in chapter 6. But if, if you're her mom and dad, and Jesus comes in and heals your daughter, are you going to keep it to yourself? Now, 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 you, you may not broadcast it on the corner, but the next guy you see, you're going to say, you know what happened at my house last week? You're going to tell it. Why? Because it's miraculous. It's something that, that, that we've talked about before, those God moments of something that only God can do. And you better bet those stories were told, I'm sure by his mom and dad, but you know what I believe? I believe Peter, James, and John were loyal to him. I don't believe they told a soul. Here's why. I think they knew and would discover why he did that. And he did that so that his ministry would not be cut short prematurely because he knew if word got out. The Pharisees are already mad at him for healing the withered guy's hand on the Sabbath. You think bringing the dead back to life is not going to be a threat to them? I mean, it's a huge threat to them, and they know that, and they understand all of this. And so if that word got out, I mean, the, the posse's coming. He better get ready because, I mean, he's going to be on the cross a whole lot sooner than, than, than God had planned. And he understands that and tells him, don't tell anybody about this. The word probably spread quietly, but I'm sure it probably spread. But I really believe those three were loyal to him, and I believe that's why he called them to experience that. I want you to see something that only you're going to see. And I'm going to ask you after you see it to keep it to yourself. Now, there are things, and there's a great lesson here as well, there are things sometimes God does for us and in us that he only wants us to see. I've shared with you before, I think, about um, my, my move from, from a concert ministry into church ministry and how reluctant I was 
about that and how God really needed to show up and make, make himself known to me. And I, I'm working on a farm at that time, and I walk out of this barn, and it's a total black day, and there's this hole in the, in the sky, and, I, and, and, it, and the sun's coming right down. It's a, it's, a, it's a beam of sunlight probably five or six feet in diameter, and it's coming right down in front of me, and the whole, day, the whole sky's black except this. And I thought, okay, that's all I need to see. And so, there, but there have been no, and I'm the only one there that saw that. And so you can either take my word for it or not. But I saw that and I experienced it and I believe it was God speaking to me. But there, I say all that to say this. There's sometimes God speaks and sometimes that even in the privacy of this kind of situation where he says, this is just between me and you. As he told these three, it's just between me and you now. I want you to see this and I want you to grow from this. I want you to learn this. But this isn't, this, this, this isn't don't, don't glamorize this. Don't make this some bit of glitz that you add to your resume. Understand that this is something supernatural that's happened in front of you and in case of you and I, in you. When something supernatural happens in us and God speaks to us, whether it's you hearing his voice or you hearing a word or you seeing him in nature or you seeing the word jump off the page to you or you're hearing the Holy Spirit slap you, in, whatever, whatever happens supernatural in nature to you and you experience God in that way, sometimes it's just you and him. In fact, oftentimes it's that way because folks around would look at us and so oftentimes it's in private oftentimes it's just he and us and I think he intends it that way so that we'll see him clearly understand he did it and not ourselves otherwise we'd, if there were folks around they'd, they'd start to ask us how in the world did you do well I've been working at that a while and I've, you know, I've been praying really hard And no <laughs> this was all God no me, zero me, all God and if it's just him and us we get it we understand we had nothing to do with it and he had everything to do with it now Here's, here's um, this loyalty was, was a great test of their faith and, and is a great test of ours when God shows up in that way. But here's what I want you to see as we kind of close our time. Um, faith that hasn't moved you to risk, and each one of these, we've, you know, faith moves us to risk convenience, moves us to risk position, moves us to risk our health, moves us to risk embarrassment, moves us to risk the safety of the crowd, or at risk our loyalty. Faith that doesn't move you to risk isn't worth a dime. Faith that hasn't caused you to, to, to make some level of risk in your walk with him in front of others isn't worth a dime. Now, both Jarius and, and, and this lady with the bleeding problem, I guarantee you they were afraid. Jarius was afraid, as I said, probably of his job, his livelihood, and perhaps even his health. This lady was afraid as well. She was afraid of embarrassment. She was afraid that she wouldn't be able to get to him, wouldn't have the strength to, to get there. I guarantee you they were afraid. They were afraid of the crowd, afraid of all of that. Might have been afraid of him, likely. I guarantee they had fear, but you know what they did? They pushed through their fear with faith. They pushed through their fear with faith, and that's the lesson I want you to get tonight. If you get nothing else, and we, we talked about this uh, uh, two weeks ago, in fact, about how, how our faith, uh, the latter part of verse 4, when Jesus calms the storm, and he, and he draws this equation for him in verse 40 of chapter 4, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And he draws this paradox between faith and fear in, the, in that the greater our faith is, the less fear we have. And the greater our fear is, the less faith we have. And so he draws this paradox and he's telling the same story. Here it is to these same guys and these same three and Jarius and this lady with the bleeding problem. The greater faith you have, the less fear you're going to have. The more you move toward me, the more your fear becomes faith. And that little girl on the side of the pool that's totally scared to death to jump to her dad, once he catches her the first time, it's a lot easier the second and once he catches the second, it's a lot easier the third and the fourth and the fifth so that when he takes a step away, even if I can't jump in and get to my dad, I know he's going to get to me. 
I know he's going to come get to me. And if he's five or six steps away and he's trying to teach me how to swim and I don't get it, I don't understand it yet, all this is is a jumping game to me. And I'm still jumping to him and I know he's coming to me. You know why? Because the first time he caught me and the second time and the third time and my fear turns into faith. And that's how that happens. So the more faith we exercise, the less fear we have. The more we push through our fear and we're afraid of some things and I'm telling you, the enemy beats us up with that, doesn't he? He beats us up with fear at, at all kinds of different levels, emotional, relational, social, uh, chemical. He beats us up with fear. And if we can push through the fear enough to where we experience God blessing our faith, boy, the second time is easier, and the third is easier, and the fourth is easier, and then we face challenges that, that would put other people <laughs> under the ground, and they're not a big deal for us anymore. Why? Because we've developed a track record of faith with him, and we know he's going to come through every time, every time couple of questions and we're done. Do you want to see God show up in incredible ways in your life? Now, I don't know what incredible looks like to you. Um, I don't know if it's relational healing from divorce. I don't know if it's physical healing from some kind of physical element. I don't know if, it's, I don't know if you're in tremendous debt and you need financial healing. I don't, know what, what, I don't know what deliverance looks like and God showing up in an incredible way in your life looks like. You do. But if you want God to show up in incredible ways in your life, I want to encourage you to do a couple of things. First of all, is move. You've got to be willing to move. If we're not willing to move from where we are into where he wants us to be, we'll never see him show up. You know why? Because he's over here saying, here I am. <laughs> I'm just a step away in the pool, and all you've got to do is jump. I've got my arms right here to catch you. Here we go. Are you with me? Come on. You can do this. And it takes everything we've got to get off the side of the pool and over to him, but the second and the third and the fourth time is easier. But we've got to take the first step. The first step has to be ours. I can't reach over there and grab Kenzie and Anna, make them want to jump off the pool into their dad's arms to teach them to teach them things about faith, to teach them how to swim, to teach them how to trust me. They've got to do that on their own. I can urge them. I can coax them. I can plead with them. But they've got to jump on their own, and we all do. And that's how God works with it. We've got to move. We can't stay where we are and our faith grow. We've got to move. I don't know what moving looks like for you. As I said, whether it's financial or, or, or marital or physical or I don't know what it looks like for you, but you need it. You need to move. Your spouse needs you to move desperately. Your kids need you to move. Your friends need you to move. This church needs you to move on your faith. Eternity is depending on you to move on your faith because some people need to see that in your life. They need to go to heaven too. They need to see that example in your life. They need to, to see the risk that you're willing to take to walk deeper with him, to move at a level with him that you've never experienced, and for your, for your roots to grow so deep that there's no storm that can knock you down. There's no storm that can weather you. Why? Because this experience of faith and that experience of faith and that experience of faith has developed such a root system in me spiritually that whatever the storm comes, I know God's going to take care of it. I know I can weather it with him. Apart from him, I can't. What are you willing to risk for him? How far are you willing to move for him? The greater your move, the greater your faith. The greater your risk, the greater your faith. That's the way God works. Father, tonight, thank you for such valuable lessons from your word. We learn them at the hand of, of a man who was willing to walk away from his livelihood to leave his profession. He knew that was a possibility. He knew that the outcast of his family was a possibility. He pushed through all of that because of his faith. Look at a lady who was totally embarrassed in her physical situation and what that had done to her life physically, and, and she was at the end of herself. She was at the end of herself, 
And that's where she found out a great deal about her faith. Will you give us those kinds of models to follow? Over and over and over again. Maybe they're in a parent. Maybe they're in a friend. Maybe they're in a spouse. Will you hold us accountable to living and walking by faith? And and give us tonight. Let it be a place we draw a line in the sand and say, Tonight I move from here. And it may be a very small step initially. It may not be a jump. I may not be heading off the pool 10 feet out to my dad. It may just be a very, very small step. But we move. And our faith starts to have movement. And our faith starts to have more risk tied to it. Because when you do that in our hearts, our root system grows deeper. It grows stronger. It develops in you. Would you do those kinds of things in us? Would we, would we give you the permission tonight to do those kinds of things? I pray that we would. I pray that we would leave tonight changed in our faith, deepened and challenged to grow deeper than it has because of our exposure to truth and the meshing of your spirit to our heart of that same truth. We love you, and we want our faith and our love to match each other and not just to be something we say, but something our very lives look like and model every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to today's message from Crosspoint Church, helping people navigate the journey toward an authentic, biblical, and contagious walk with Christ.